Today's episode of The Boarding Pass is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmy.ca. Welcome to a very special edition of The Boarding Pass with Ken Weave and myself, Murata Tesh. We have a very special guest today, formerly, up until very recently, assistant coach with the Winnipeg Jets, Todd Woodcroft, is joining us today. Um, but we're going to start. Ken, it's been a while since we caught up. There have been some major life changes. The dog I was fostering got adopted. The house oh. is empty. Life is different. I want to know how you're ha- handling things and how you're hunkering in. Well, uh, everything is uh, solid on my end here. Thanks for asking. Uh, busy week on the nostalgia front with the Dustin Bufflin news since our last podcast. Uh, that's been keeping me fairly busy. And uh, Andrew Kopp uh, and Neil Pionk, both with some entertainment value on their Zoom calls. And other than that, uh, just rolling along, trying to get the exercise in daily and still waiting to see where we're going with the hockey season. But it uh, seems as though Manitoba continuing to do a good job on the uh, social distancing side. And we're thankful for that. Yeah, well done, Manitoba. Well done, Minnesota as well. And before I move too far, I got to say a shout out to Andrew Kopp for referencing heat maps in his video call. Absolutely. <laughs> I made sure to NBA. get that into my story. I made, made, made sure to work that into the piece. Good bit of writing on your part to make sure it's stuck to. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, but without further ado, the uh, you know a man that uh, Andrew Kopp specifically shouted out as somebody who was always there for uh, for him as a person and as a player said that he flat out went to bat for him. Todd Woodcroft, welcome to the show. Thanks, gentlemen. I'm still waiting for the special guest announcement. You said you got somebody really important to come on in here, so I'm just waiting for wait for somebody to come on here and that I could be excited to listen to. Well, we got the the new head coach of the University of Vermont um, joining us today. I don't know if you've heard too much from him, but I recently read that it was actually one of his lifelong dreams to be a head coach of of an NCAA team and, and, and go the college route. But it's my understanding you didn't grow up necessarily in that system or playing college necessarily. What's how does that dream form for you? Well, basically, I wasn't good enough to play college hockey. I tried, but it just just wasn't good enough. But both my brothers did. And my older brother uh, played at Colgate University. And and some of the formative years of my own journey in in coaching were watching my older brother, Craig. uh, He coaches in the KHL right now and watching him play even at the University of Vermont. And I remember that was when Vermont was in the ECAC. And the battles he would have personally against a guy like John LeClaire and being in there and watching them and, and seeing the fan base that was so strong there that always had a uh, an impression on my mind. And then even my younger brother coming up through uh, Division One hockey too, being able to see his journey as a player and then now into a coach himself. And I, I think anyone who's a coach at some point uh, you have to figure out if they want to be a head coach or if they're comfortable being an assistant coach and, and you have to get out of your comfort zone sometimes. And, you know, the, the gentlemen that I were able to coach with every single day in Winnipeg, they were always, we were always uncomfortable, but comfortably uncomfortable, if that makes sense. So that's something I've always wanted to do. And then when you get a chance to be in a city like Burlington, Vermont, it makes things a lot easier. Uh, the folks in Vermont, Todd, were wondering if you spoke French. Uh, apparently that's been a recruiting hotbed for them in the past, but it's sort of fallen off in recent years. I do speak French. Uh, if, if you ask Mathieu Perrault, he would probably say that my French is, uh, it's okay. Um, you know, it's one of those things where it's, it's like any, any skill that you have to keep working at it all the time. So I'm very comfortable in French. Uh, one of my first jobs in the NHL, I was surrounded by French Canadians and Jacques Lemaire and Mario Tremblay. So I always try to speak French to our French guys. And I don't know if I'm doing a good job or not, but they seem to understand me. So I think that with the history of players that come from Quebec to UVM, you know, you could go up and down and there's dozens of amazing players that have come through there. And you look obviously at the top, you got Marty St. Louis, who's a Hall of Famer. Uh, and, you know, arguably top five most famous players that come out of the UVM programs. So we want to get back inside the, the Quebec corridor. We already have two uh, young players who are committed before I got there that are coming out of there, and, and we're excited. We're excited to be there. 
I uh, didn't know that bit about the language. I feel like I was caught in, caught in, stuck in. It was so awful. An elevator with you and, uh, and I don't even know how to pronounce his first name. Bogdan? Bogdan Kisilevich? Oh, yeah. Bogdan Kisilevich, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like I, I heard you guys uh, chatting in Russian to each other as well at one point. So uh, how, how many of these languages have you exactly collected at this part? I, I think if you can get by saying a bunch of words in a, in a bunch of different languages, you probably have an advantage. So living in Europe, I was able to learn how to say please and thank you and excuse me in, you know, maybe six, six or seven languages. And, and if you can get around and do that, I think if you respect other people's cultures, especially coming from being in North American where people just expect us to be bullies or us to be, uh, you know, the dominant personality in the room. I think if you show respect to those cultures by even understanding a few words, whether it's, you know, Finnish or Swedish or French or Slovak or whatever country you're lucky enough to be in. And, and then in Russia, I was able to study a bit of Russian. And, and, you know, if you want to eat in Russia, you better learn how to order, you know, chicken or something. So, uh, you know, with, with Bogdan, it was always fun because he would always make fun of my Russian, but his English was way better than my Russian. So we would just default to speak in, uh, to speak in English because he spoke great English. Let's, uh, let's go to the job itself. Uh, how does one apply for a job like this uh, under these circumstances? And also please maybe talk a little bit about how or what influence did Paul Maurice have in encouraging you to go for the job itself? I, it's weird. Like, it, and you get, uh, you know, when, if you're lucky enough to coach in the NHL or at any kind of high level, it's usually you're not really writing a resume or um, putting in a job application. So it's, it's, it's going to be somebody who says to the hiring committee, this is somebody that you should talk to. I have a lot of friends who are coaching in uh, Hockey East, um, guys that I've known for 20 years and, I think will soon be the next generation of coaches in the NHL. And one of those guys had put my name forward to the athletic director and he reached out and, and asked if I would be interested in it. So I was able to organize some thoughts. Uh, he, he went to uh, Kevin Chevaldeoff and said, you know, is it okay if I talk to Todd? And then of course, for me, just the ability to call Paul Maurice and just, you know, just run the idea by him. And, and, you know, Paul being Paul, he told them that, uh, he was going to tell him all these terrible things about me and my criminal behavior and, you know, like my overdue library books and all these kind of things so that I wouldn't get the job because he was uh, hoping that I would that I would be able to stay on his staff. But just like anybody who cares about you or fosters you or teaches you, he understands that for me to see if I'm any good and also to realize my own goals and dreams that I would have to go and be a head coach. So. For him, it was almost like a father, even though, believe it or not, he's only like four years older than me, but he has like, you know, decades more experience and billions of hours of more knowledge of hockey than I'm ever going to have. But for him, he wanted me to be safe, like he wanted it to be the right spot. So even at the beginning, when he told me, just make sure when they're interviewing you, because this is all by Zoom, this is, you know, what's going on in the world right now that I was interviewing the people that were interviewing me and that it would be somewhere that I would want to go and somewhere that I felt I would have success. And, and uh, you know, right from the right off the bat, like the people that interviewed me, they were from all different cross sections of the, the university and even the community. And, you know, there's men and women that have been serving UVM athletics or even just UVM in the faculty for like 20 years. One gentleman was 30 years in the athletic department and just, you see that and you see the commitment to helping the next young generation of players or the next young generation of students and even citizens on campus. So for me, it was a great fit. That stuff's very important to me, how you are uh, behaving and how you're perceived on the community and, and the logo that you represent. Todd, um, one of the things that I think that I noticed the most, you know, you know, Ken and I being in the stands for practice oftentimes and uh, we see what happens out on the ice is it seemed to me that you had a one-on-one -on -one connection with a lot of the young guys on Winnipeg. And if somebody wanted to run an extra drill, extra drill, part of me, fish some pucks off the wall, whatever it was, often it would be the youth. And that seems to fit in to the age range of the people that, that you're going to be coaching and, and developing as well. Um, is there a connection there? Is there a sense that your ability to connect with the individual young players is going to be a big part of your job? 
I think probably intellectually, that's right in my age range anyway. Like, you know, I might be the guy reading <laughs> Harry, Harry Potter on the bus. But there, there is a definite connection there because I'm really a young guy in the NHL. And these are young guys in the NHL. And even though I might have 20-odd years on a lot of the guys that uh, I'm able to be on the ice with in Winnipeg, um, it, you know, we're both kind of trying to do the same thing. We're both trying to earn our way into the game and earn it through work ethic and you know, for Paul, Paul has to get off the ice early because he has so many obligations that he has to take care of in the media. But if you look anywhere on that ice, you're going to see Wade Flaherty working with the goalies. You're going to see Charlie Huddy given the details of playing D. And you're going to see Jamie Compon, who's like, it seems to be he's in all zones at one time. So for me to just hang around and, and uh, work with some guys and the individual things that they like to do, that that's actually the funnest part of the job for me. Like you can you know, work on a very specific skill set for a, an individual player who work wants to work on one individual aspect of the game. So for me, that's lots of fun. But Paul has the hardest job there because he has to manage all of the players at one time. I, I get the advantage of, uh, you know, just having one or two guys at a time, usually before practice or the end of practice. Todd, you obviously come from a hockey background. I mean, what's it like to have brothers as sounding boards when you're when you're making critical decisions about your own future? I I think they were kind of you, you'd almost have to look at the ages when we were sounding each other because I usually was a board for my older brother, but it wasn't a sounding board. It was him hitting my head <laughs> against the board. Most times we would have hockey discussions and and uh, just seeing specifically my older brother and from being a real good college player and then his pro journey and then getting into Europe and then, you know, with the Canadian Olympic team in 94 and then just even him coaching and how he started coaching with Jeff Ward and Mannheim and, you know, they win a championship. And then now all of a sudden he's got like a, a KHL team, you know, and now he's on the Canadian Olympic team in, in, uh, in South Korea. And, you know, for, for me to see that and say, oh my gosh, like you can, you can really find a goal and attain it if you put your mind to it and the idea that you can outwork other people. Like if you have the idea in your work habits that you don't take any shortcuts, I, I firmly believe it because I've seen it. Like, so, you know, if my older brother has seen that, that's been great. And then my younger brother, it's, you know, we're very close. We talk basically every single day and not even just hockey, but, to specifically answer your question there, like, yeah, we, we always share ideas. Like we always talk about, but it's more problems. Like, Hey, I'm having this issue here. You know, what do you think? Or I can say, Hey, this is happening here with, you know, this group of players, what's your idea? And they, they're in the battle themselves. Uh, they're both head coaches. So they're going to have a different lens than I have. And at this point anyway, and, uh, I can give them an assistant coach's perspective. So my younger brother, Jay, who was an assistant coach for, you know, 12 or 13 years is like, like over a thousand games as an assistant coach in the NHL to take a step back in his journey to be a head coach and go to Bakersfield. And, and a very similar situation as me, like him and Todd McClellan were very, very, very close. And Todd was such a instrumental part of Jay's development as a coach but Jay at some point had to say I gotta leave this comfort if I want to be a head coach and and you know I've only had four years with Paul like where Jay had 12 or 13 I think with Todd McClellan but Paul's impact on me is very similar to Todd's impact on Jay. You're taking a a, a big leap um, uh, in, in a great way right now and, and leaning into the discomfort, I think, to, to try to steal your words, if, if that's what those are accurately. And I'm wondering, given that, you know, your brother made a similar sort of transition in an attempt to further his career, you know, are there, like, what would your concerns be right now, I guess? And what, what are they able to sort of say to you in, in an advisory sort of role that, that's sort of helping you frame your mind about how you take the next step? Well, you, you know, the first thing is you're, you're safe. Like where I am with Paul Maurice and that staff, like you're safe. Like, and I understand the, the volatility of coaching in the, in the NHL. I get that. Like at any given time, coaching staffs are changed all the time. But I also know that anytime I'm around Paul, like he has my best interests at heart. And at the end of the day, Paul is the guy that's going to take the bullets for the players and he's going to take the bullets for the staff. Um, now 
that's my my job to do that. So I have to do the same thing for the people who work alongside me and the people, whether they're the equipment managers or medical staff or the communications people. Like I have to stand there and take take a lot of the punches. And that's just, I mean that's a scary thing because I'm walking into a program that. Um, well, maybe they haven't had a lot of wins lately. They've done such good things in the community. There's a lot of high character. I'm coming in after specifically three coaches who are revered in the state of Vermont for how well they took care of the hockey fans and, and just making sure that these players were student athletes first and then they were community citizens second and then they were hockey players. So for me to walk into the legacy that was left behind it's a huge responsibility, but it's just like you get to the diving board and you can put your toe in or you can or you can jump in. So I just decided right now at this point, this is going to be a good opportunity to jump in. And then the biggest fear is to see if I'm any good. I guess we're, <laughs> I guess we're going to find out. The Todd Woodcroft cannonball coming up in Vermont. Uh, <laughs> Not a big splash. Not a big splash, that's for sure. Uh, obviously, some of it will be personnel related, but I mean, what's your vision for how you want, what's a Todd Woodcroft team going to look like and how do you want them to play as you try to build that culture both on and off the ice? Well, I mean, the players that are there right now, um, they've been there before I got there and they did a great job of, re- of recruiting some high character players. So these are the players that if you wanted any Jets fans listening, these are like the Matt Hendricks. These are like the Mark Stewart types of play, the Adam Lowry's, the, the players who will do anything for your team uh, to win. So my job is going to be to get them to have a little bit more offense at the same time without sacrificing defense. So they, they, they just graduated a senior goalie who was an amazing goaltender. So we have to be able to keep that same defensive structure, but then maybe change the style of the play of the team to create a little bit more offense. So if they're going to be a team that's going to represent me, the first thing is they have to have character that can, that competes. They have to have an ambition. The players that I'm going to recruit and the staff is going to recruit, they have to have some ambition, hopefully to play hockey beyond their college career. I think that uh, good coaches are going to give their players that feeling of, you know, it's possible to go and play somewhere. So that they know that you're going to work on the details of their game day in and day out that down the road if it's their goal to play hockey that our staff is going to try to outwork every other staff by developing these players as individuals not just the team too so I guess specifically to answer it like I need a team that's going to compete hard night in and night out and make the other teams uncomfortable every single time that we have a chance to be on the ice. You talked a little bit about sort of fitting your I guess strategy to who you have in, in terms of your personnel. And um, that kind of dovetails into a sort of a Winnipeg thought that uh, has been on my mind for a while. We heard a lot early in the season about, you know, the transition on the Jets defense, a lot of guys out, a lot of guys in. Um, and some, I guess Paul spoke to changes in terms of, well, okay, there's a little bit of a size change. There's a little bit of a mobility change. And now we saw through most of the season, you know, a really great commitment to having three guys back across the blue line and a little bit of offense seemed to be shaved off of that and by off as a result of that, pardon me. And so by all means, Todd, I, I love being told when I'm wrong in, in those sorts of things, but it seemed to me that the focus was a little bit less on an aggressive old 17-18 Jets forecheck and a little bit more at protecting the Jets' blue line. And I'm wondering if that was if that's actually true, let's be honest, I, that's just my opinion or, of what I saw. And then kind of how the the trade-offs go, because you're always trying to address, you know, you want to win a hockey game and there's lots of different ways to do it. Well, when you lose, I think it's five defensemen off the roster that we had from the year before, like that's a huge hit to your lineup. I don't think anybody really recognized, except probably Kevin Shailvodayoff and his staff, like how good Neil Pionk was. And then the emergence of Neil Pionk as a player. And then even someone like Tucker Pullman. So these are players that really weren't asked before to uh, have the responsibility responsibility that they were given so early and so fast and then actually run with it. So stylistically, you're going to change a little bit of your game there. You're right. But a lot of that is just the development of these players. So when you lose Bufflin and you, you lose Myers and you lose Ben Sherratt, just, just right off the top of my head, like those are three veteran 
players. So your game will look different stylistically too. So you can just picture Buff being down on top of guys in the offensive zone and, and Ben's ability to get shots through and just even how he played pucks on the, on the, on the wall offensively. So when we're asking these players that are coming in that ha really haven't had a ton of quote-unquote Jets experience, there has to be a little bit of a leash for them too. I expect that those players are going to continue to develop. Um, and then, you know, you see Charlie Huddy, what he does with those guys every single day and showing them the way that we play a game. So it's almost like a language. We talk about languages like you, you're almost speaking a language that you have to be familiar with all the time and you have to practice it, practice it, practice it. So I think that's a big part of the DNA of the team going forward. And I think that as these young guys, not just the D, but the forwards understanding their relationship with those D, you're going to see this team just keep getting better and better. Todd, one of the guys we touched on earlier on, Andrew Kopp, had a lot of nice things to say about the work you put in together. I mean, as someone who has seen the growth in Kopp's game and all the debate over whether he has the ability to be a top six forward or a number two center, I mean, what, what do you see as his ceiling? Because for me, I think it's way too early to suggest that he can't do it just because he continues to get better every single season. Yeah, I don't think there's a word can't in Andrew Kopp's vernacular. Like there's no, like Andrew Kopp sees himself as being a top line player and that's good. That's good because that gives him a tangible goal. That's not a dream for Andrew. That's a tangible goal that he can do this. And Andrew specifically is a very versatile player. So he can play up on the top line with Mark Shifley and Blake Wheeler and be just fine because he has a defensive conscience in his brain to be able to do that. Or he can play second line center and be responsible down the middle of the ice too. And then when we needed something uh, specific against the other team's lines, we had him and uh, Lowry together and interchanged people on the other side there. Like he has huge value there. So he's like the, the baseball player that's the multi-tool player. He can, he can play anywhere up and down your lineup. He's almost like a left-handed Brian Little where you can have value in any hole that you put him. So I think the sky is the limit with Andrew. He's, he's a great, great player who has taken huge strides, specifically in the last two or three years. And I think a lot of that comes from confidence. Like he understands uh, that Paul has confidence in him and he's getting his own confidence in himself too. And then of course the teammates are going to trust him every time he's on the ice. The Jets ran a 6-3-1 and one, I think over your last 10 heading into the pause and it seemed like the defense, defensive conscience was, was certainly there from Kopp. And uh, I felt like we started to see the, through health and, and through other things as well, some some really good, I want to call it trapping forwards or what have you. I, I want to say pressure on other teams' breakouts and a little bit of transition offense from the Jets towards the end of the year as well. And I'm wondering, you, you mentioned the phrase, the relationship that the forwards have to defense. And, and I'm wondering if you can expand on that and sort of teach us a little bit, what does that mean? How do those things relate to each other, uh, you know, in the back and forth of the game? Well, the first thing you talk about, even on the forecheck there, so if you have a heavier forecheck, you're forcing the other teams to put pucks along the walls. And when you know that pucks are coming along the walls, you're able to recognize that ahead of time, and that's going to change how you forecheck. Or even just getting their D to have their toes facing the wrong way, like almost towards their own nets and trying to make plays when they're uncomfortable. So with the speed that the forwards have on the Jets, uh, and it's a team speed, it doesn't just mean, you know, Roslevic or Kyle Connor. it's a team speed and a team dedication to getting to pucks as quick as possible, making the other teams uncomfortable and forcing them into plays that they don't want to have. That started to evolve way better towards the end of the year. And, and, and you said it with the health, right? Like that was basically the first time that the team was healthy all year, minus a big piece, of course, and Brian Little. And then the relationship between the forwards and the D, that's an ability for, because the, if the D's eyes are always facing up the ice, they're seeing what's coming at them. And they're able to process how many people from the other team are coming towards them, whether that's two or whether that's three. But they're going to have a trust relationship with that first forward back to see how they're going to handle that rush, how they are going to you know, sort out the three-on-two from the other team because they know the gap between our F3, our first forward back, basically, and our defensemen. So that's a relationship that's built through the practices. You guys watch the practices all the time. You see 
the emphasis that's placed on rush reads and that talking between the D and the forwards. That's a huge component of it. And then it's the trust, trusting the skill set of the players, the forwards that are coming back. So if you have Jack Rosovic, you understand that nobody's going to be Jack in a race and he's going to be able to influence that puck before it gets the red line. Or maybe it's someone that's not as quick as Jack Rosovic, but they understand that that might be a wily uh, veteran forward who's able to pick up an option, you know, whether it's on the outside lane or whatever. But that, that relationship, the trust between all the players, it's a trust between the goalie and the D. It's a trust between the D and the forwards in breakout situations. And all of that comes from practice. And then the easiest solution is talking. Talking solves a lot of problems. Todd, we talk so much about the high-end and elite skilled forwards and the ability to put the puck in the net, but what's it like for you when you see a guy like Mason Appleton endure that freak injury at the Heritage Classic and then go back to the moose and then come back up and kind of find his way and sort of start to show the type of player he could be? Because for me, uh, he's the kind of guy that is a natural replacement for Brandon Tanev. I mean, obviously he's not quite as physical, but I think there's an edge to his game. I think there's probably a little bit more offensive upside to him but to me he could be that perfect checking line plus player i, I wouldn't say it to tanev because he, he like he thinks he's basically like mario lemieux now that he's in pittsburgh and and uh you know he's, he feels he's going to score 70 goals a year but <laughs> with with mason specifically this is a guy that does have a history of offense like this was a you know how, how well he played in the american league so when he goes back there and pascal vincent and his staff get this player that was playing at that point, you know, seven, eight minutes a night, and then he comes back and then he's getting healthy and now he's playing 18 or 19 minutes a night and he's finding his confidence offensively. That's going to help him become a player. Same thing happened with Rosvik. Same thing happened with Kyle Connor, even Andrew Kopp a little bit, like getting their confidence in the American League. So when they step up and maybe they're not going to be an 18-minute player, but in the seven minutes they're playing, they're going to be way better at it because they're going to be able to relax, understand that they do have the skill set to make plays, that they do have the skill set sometimes to not make plays, which is a huge part of young players learning what to do inside the game is sometimes you can't make a play. So for someone like Mason, I think he's going to be an excellent person to play in that role like Tanev. And then in a couple of years, Mason might be the guy that's even up in the top six because he's big, he can skate, He's a really good listener in a sense that you tell him something, he wants to do it. There's no pushback from Mason. And that's not saying that he's, you know, soft mentally. That's not what I mean. It just means he's actually amenable to be coached and he wants to get better and he wants to be in the NHL. And now he's essentially arrived. So just like Andrew Kopp, like it's a similar situation. The sky is the limit for Mason. He's going to be an excellent Jet for a long time. Do you have a, a personal philosophy on... Um, you know, a top six and then a checking line or a top nine with, with the talent spread out depending on, on sort of what personnel that you have? Because when, when Ken asked that question, and it does seem like a guy like Cop or a guy like Appleton, they have a little bit of, uh, of capability of excellence in, in, in all areas of the ice, uh, but they're not dropping 50 goals a year or what have you. So um, I'm mangling the introduction of the question, Todd, but I'm going to trust you and understand what I mean. No, no, I understand you completely. And I think that, you know, you, you don't just think about the 50 goals a year that they're not going to score. You might think about the 50 goals a year that they're going to prevent. So at the end of the day, the currency that Paul has over all the players is ice time. Like they, Paul needs a reason to put these guys on the ice. And that reason is built up over trust. So in your question about the top six and top nine, like Paul doesn't really run his bench like that. Like a lot of times he comes out with Adam Lowry to go against their best guys. So does that mean that Adam Lowry is really the second line team or the second line on the team? Not, not really. Like it's how Paul is able to manipulate the game, how he wants to have certain personnel against other players. So you know, the players, they're always going to look at their ice time and say, okay, that's what a first-line player does, that's what a second-line player, that's what a third-line player, and that's what a fourth-line player. But good coaches like Paul will have all those players understand their importance inside that game. And those minutes will change, power plays and penalty kills. And, and as you get towards the end of the season and Paul doesn't want Blake Wheeler to be killing as many penalties. And so you'll see a fluctuation inside their minutes, but the players themselves understand where they are inside that roster so i don't think there's a real 
you know, top six, top nine type of feeling inside the locker room, especially the way that Paul is able to almost be like a Kasparov where he can put his players on the ice at certain times to counter whoever else is coming from the other team. Interesting, uh, Todd. I mean, I referenced Dustin Bufflin uh, in the opening. I mean, what are your Dustin Bufflin memories and what was it like to to coach a bit of a, a wild card uh, at times? I think with Dustin, most people don't understand how much he actually cares. Like, he cared about his game. He cared about his teammates with the way that he played and the way that he practiced. And specifically, Ken, to answer your question, like, for me, what I'm, I, I think most about Dustin is, is, is his laugh, right? Like, that, that like, high-pitched laughing, like, that makes other people on the ice have fun. But also, if you're on the other team, you're thinking, this is a cuckoo bird who's going to, you know, come and he's going to find me and he's going to hurt me, right? Like, so... I think of those things about Dustin, like what a force he was physically, um, how hard he worked and practiced, like which unless you come and you see him every day, he actually drove practice. So Blake kind of drives practice from the forwards perspective and Buff would drive practice from the, from the D's perspective because they were making the right plays. Like they, you know, Dustin has a little bit more fun, but they kept the practice right all the time. So Blake is the driver and Buff is kind of like the fun conscience, but Buff never took a practice off. Like he's always working and maybe his practices are a little bit shorter, but the time that he was out there, you can guarantee that he was working to make sure his game was right. I've been so interested in all the responses. I forgot to do a piece of my job here, which is to, to reference uh, a, a little bit of promotion because we've had... Uh, a really excellent feature at The Athletic about what if so far, uh, what if when it comes to major transformational moments of a franchise. And one of the ones that Jeremy Rutherford teamed up with Mark Lazarus about was what if St. Louis had taken Jonathan Taves uh, way back with their number one overall pick during the Eric Johnson uh, draft year? How would that have changed the franchise? And um, they're having TJ Oshie on the podcast in St. Louis with We Went Blues this week. Ken, I know you, you got a kick out of TJ Oshie talking up uh, Jonathan Taves in that piece. Yeah, for sure. And for me, uh, it's a personal connection because I was in Vancouver covering the draft, the Jonathan Taves draft, uh, because we thought there was a chance that a Winnipegger could go number one for the first time ever and got to know Jonathan and his family a little bit in the weeks leading up to the draft. And as a guy who covered the American League at the time, I was kind of scrambling uh, in Vancouver. I didn't have the agenda and where things were, and I was hustling off when the first day I got there. Ray Shiro's scrum was already done, but I had known him a little bit from when he was in Milwaukee. So I did ask if he had a quick question or a quick minute to, to answer a question about uh, Jonathan Taves, and he gave an incredible answer. And I was certain that he would take him at number two. Uh, it was my introduction to smoke screens by general managers. Uh, they were happy to take Jordan Stahl with that number two pick. But, I mean, we've talked often in the past. I mean, it's amazing to think that, I mean, of course, the Penguins did did a great job with their cup-winning teams. But at one point, the Penguins could have actually had Crosby, Malkin, and Taves as their three centers, with all due respect to Jordan Stahl. But uh, the fact that T.J. Oshie was talking up uh, his line mate at the University of North Dakota, uh, Jonathan Taves, no surprise there. And uh, I'm guessing a lot of teams, I mean, obviously both those teams would have loved to have had Taves in their lineup given uh, the success that he's had. Uh, wonder about you, Todd. Do you think do you have any Jonathan Taves moments? Obviously, you saw him a lot in the Central Division. I mean, all those players you talked about, are excellent players and both those teams in Pittsburgh and Chicago have won multiple cups. So they're probably both happy. Um, you know, Jonathan Taves, like seeing him so much and him being a centerman, which is something that I really care about positionally. He's such a gifted athlete, but he's such a gifted person too. Like I've never heard anybody say anything bad about Jonathan Taves like there's nothing bad about this guy he's just like Nick Lidstrom basically as a forward he's kind he plays hard he plays right he cares about his teammates he's a captain that is great in the city in the community like he's a he's a hall of famer in my opinion and to see that his evolution he never changed right like he never got jaded or you know, he wasn't releasing rap albums or country albums or, you know, like selling perfume on the side or selling watches. Like he's always the exact same guy where he's a hockey player 
who cares about his city and he cares about his team. I'm a huge, huge Taves fan, and, and I mean, he's, he's still got so many more years to go. And just even young centermen coming in to see how he plays for sure, but also how he behaves as well, which is which to me is a very important part of his character. Just so complete to watch. And, and for so many years, even, even as a teenager in the World Juniors, it seemed to me that he had that completeness and, and edge and, and two-wayness. Two-wayness is not a word. You'll all forgive me for that. Uh, to his game. It is today. It's, it is today. We'll allow Well, it. you know what? In quarantine times, you got to entertain your brain somehow. And we're going to make up two-wayness as, <laughs> as a word <laughs> today. Um, on the note of centers, and uh, I feel like some of my uh, most impressive Mark Shifley memories, there's, there's a play in three-on-three overtime uh, against the New Jersey Devils. I think it was last season, not the one that's just been put on pause where he makes, at the end of something like a minute-long shift, a, a back check on Nico Heischer, lifts his stick, goes back the other way, has the presence of mind to deke out the goaltender and finish the play for the game winner. And I thought to myself, like, at that moment, wow, here is the emergence of a two-way player who can dominate at both ends of the rink. It, it really seemed to consolidate, you know, some of what he did against Nashville uh, in the playoffs prior and, and that whole that whole run. Um, and I got to be honest, there were a couple of times this season and it was a matchup against Anthony Sorelli against Tampa Bay. And then there's a couple of other times where I thought to myself, Mark Shifley is not executing that two-way dominance that I had seen from him or believed that he had reached. And Todd, I just want to know what your thoughts are on that. Am I off base with that? Or what's the, where is he at in his evolution? Because I know centers are something you're passionate about and Mark Shifley is somebody that you believe in. I'm not very argumentative by nature, but I would tell you that I would disagree with you on this one because, you know, this is a fluid game where you can't just judge a player by individual moments or, you know, we don't know at that time if he was having an injury or what was going on inside that game. The first part of your comment about him with that New Jersey goal, I remember that well, and, and I know that Paul would say he wouldn't want his centerman to be out there or anybody out there in overtime for over a minute long shift, but he's such a gifted athlete. I, I personally think Mark is in the same vein as Jonathan Taves, right? So these are, these are human beings that are really human becomings and, and evolving as players all the time. And Mark is evolving. And what's best about him is that he wants to be the best player in the NHL. He wants the conversation to be Mark Shifley, and then behind him he wants McDavid and Kucherov and Crosby and all those and McKinnon. He wants all those guys behind him, and that drives him. And I think Taves has a similar outlook about it. So what Taves has on Mark is a little bit more experience. Like he has a little bit more of a well to go into when things are not great or when things are great, and he's always the exact same. I personally think Mark is just getting better and better every year. And as you guys watch him at the end of the practice, I, I haven't seen a player in my life that works on the smallest, tiniest details of their game like Mark does. Like his ability to, if you think of Mark in on a four check, so he's a right-handed player. And let's say he's coming in on the goalie's right shoulder. So which would be like our left side and the puck is in against the wall. He has a skill set where he's able to get in there and just with his top hand, his left hand, to punch that puck and change sides so it's on the other way. So it's almost like he's stealing from that defenseman that's there to get the puck because they don't expect that. And I remember going up to him one time. I said, like, like Mark, like, tell me about that. Like, you know, like, I've seen you do it now like 30 times. And he said, yeah, I actually worked on that this summer. So, you know, so like the, the, the cognitive process for Mark to recognize that there's a part of the game that most people don't even think about and then to think of a drill to work on it and then to work on it every single day. So he consistently works on the smallest parts of his game. And I think that's what's going to make him, can, again, be a guy like Jonathan Taves. He's a special, special player, special athlete, and, and he wants to be the best player in the NHL, which is awesome. Let's uh, stay down the middle, Todd. Obviously, you have a connection to Sweden. I mean, what kind of potential do you see for David Gustafsson? He got a taste of uh, the NHL game, scored his first goal. I mean, he was used in a limited role in terms of ice time, but a uh, guy really showed a lot of confidence at the World Junior, and then I had a chance to see him late in the year when he was with the Moose. Uh, uh, it seems like, to me, he's going to be another pretty conscientious two-way player, but uh, what do you see for him in terms of potential? I see him in the same vein as, like, the cop and the Lowry where he's, 
a cerebral guy too. He's not just relied upon for offense all the time. So when he played with us, he played responsibly. That was the first thing. Paul had complete trust in David putting him on the ice. And he's 18 years old, right? Like he's 18 years old or 19 years old now. Like he's just a young player and to come in and first of all, most Swedes have the same personality and that's not, I'm trying not to be generalizing people here, but they're very soft-spoken. They're great listeners. In my experience, uh, they will process everything around them and then try to do it and they don't want any fanfare. And that's exactly what David is. Like he's a quiet guy. He just absorbed everything from everybody. Every guy in the team was able to grab him and show him something small, whether it was, you know, pulling pucks off the wall, which he would do a thousand times a day after practice. Like you'd have to kick him off the ice, even if he was a healthy scratch, because somewhere along the line, you know, Jamie Compon had told him, hey, we got to make sure you're pulling pucks off the wall better. So in his mind, David is like, now I have to do this if I want to stay here. So he worked so hard to stay with the team. And then he goes to the World Juniors, and, and I'm actually friends with their head coach, Thomas Montan, and he told me this guy had all the details that were right. He was like essentially one of the most important players in that team and, and, and a wonderful, wonderful kid, like just, just a wonderful young man who's, you know, I, I think the world of him, I think it sounds like I think everybody's great, but every guy you've mentioned so far is, is an excellent person with a great career. I got to, because I loved the answer, I, I got to go back to Shifley and ask you about something that sometimes when I watch him, I think he's maybe better than anyone else that I've ever seen. And I, and I want to know if there's anything to this or if I'm making it up. Um, I, I swear the guy seems to process time differently than other people. It seems to me that he always has, like, if there's certain rhythmic beats that plays happen on, to me he has an extra quarter second or an extra fifth of a second that other people aren't seeing. Uh, to make a play, to hold on to the puck, to find a seam. And I'm wondering if there's anything to that about Mark Shifley. You know, I, I haven't thought about it that way, Murat, but I think you're right there. It's like if you have five players on the ice who are each playing their instrument and they're all playing their instrument and they're doing a good job, you're going to have some really good music. And you get someone like Mark, like he's able to exactly, I, I never thought about that, but that's great. Like he's he's able to speed things up and slow things down almost like jazz music which i don't really know anything about but i know that there's a tempo there and mark for me with mark his his ability to use his eyes so his eyes are never down so if you're looking at mark like he, he immediately has that puck on his stick and he's scanning to see what the next best play is and his his actual hand skills are like phenomenal like his ability to control that puck and pull pucks out of people's feet and look to make that next play and attack the net, attack the dot hard. But for me, when I watch him in practice, he's always working on his eyes. Like the eyes are controlling the hands for him, which most people don't have that ability. And for him to just put that thing on his stick and then his eyes are immediately up and being able to find whether it's a teammate or whether it's getting a puck to the net himself, like it's that he's uncanny about that. I think you're right about that one. That's the first time I'm going to say you're right, Moran. <laughs> I'm going to take it yeah, and run. Yeah, you yeah. better run with that one because that, that's that's pretty good. I never thought about like like that all that music analogy, but I think you're you're bang on with it. Just one last one about centers, Todd. I mean, you touched on Adam Lowry earlier. I mean, how do you what do you see as the importance of the of his intangibles? Obviously, Adam's always been a guy whose game stretches beyond the the, the historical or traditional statistics. I mean, what do you see as his biggest strengths, and maybe what's the underlying importance of his game when he's playing when he's at when he's healthy and playing at his top level? Well, and he's not healthy. It's because he's playing in a way that's going to make him not healthy, right? So that means he plays the hard minutes, like he's. He's the forward that will stand up to Ryan Reeves, right? Like he's, he's the guy that if you're building your team and you want some success, you want to have some success down the spine of your team, right? So you want your centers to be a huge asset to your team. You obviously want your goalie to be a huge asset to your team. And if you can have a guy like Adam who Paul can put on the ice against the other team's best, and then really those guys like Adam's line – they're so good because they don't really play in the D zone. And like most, you know, quote unquote, checking lines, you're just thinking they're just shutting down the other team defensively. But Adams lines, they're usually playing in the offensive zone. So if you think about those, uh, we, we, we talked about the Nashville series, you know, how much Adam was playing in the offensive zone, even that Minnesota series, like 
he's such a threat to the other teams that he's going to steamroll you or he's going to get under your stick and take that puck, but he's going to keep you honest for sure with his own honest work ethic. And then for me, the value of Adam goes far beyond any numbers, any statistics, any analytics. His value to the team is like he's such a great person in the locker room. When he speaks, people are going to listen. And he has a an ability to keep things light too. Like you guys have been around him enough. You know that he's, a, he's an excellent soundbite, but he's actually calculated in how he answers uh, questions. And he'll always have, he's a very positive guy, but he's going to think about the question too, and then he's going to answer it. And you know that when he's around the teammates, it's the exact same thing. He's not just going to say something for the sake of putting out some words. There, there's a lot of weight behind what he says. So he's an, he's an excellent player. He's, he's going to be around for a long, 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 long time. Paul has so much trust in him. But for me, it's the person. For me, Adam's almost better as a person than he is as a player. And you probably can't say that as a coach because you want these guys on the ice. But he's such a good, good, such a good man. I have a memory of talking to uh, a fan who used to listen to Adam Lowry radio clips and, uh, you know, you'd be driving home from the game and you'd turn on TSN 1290 and he'd hear the clip and he'd, uh, he'd think that Adam Lowry was answering kind of in a monotone and he, he would never find the passion in it. And it wasn't until he started reading Lowry's quotes where he realized that, wait a second, this guy thought exactly about the question. He articulated it perfectly. The guy spoke in paragraphs, basically, that he started to appreciate Lowry as a, as a quote as well. And I think that for me, just listening in the scrums, it seems to, to speak to a very thoughtful uh, guy with a, with a ton of humility. Uh, as well that's just my adam lowry as a i, th- I think you're right story. like he, and he's also coming from a family that's been a hockey family for so long so his dad a longtime player very similar type of player his mom is such a strong influence on him as well so he comes from a great family where he is sensitive to other people and they did a really really good job uh, bringing Adam up. His dad sent me a text when I when I got this job, and I sent him a note back saying, like, you know what, your your kid's the worst kid I ever met in my life. Like, he's, <laughs> he's a terrible kid. Like, you know, I, I don't even remember his name, and he was laughing with me too because he knows how I feel about him. But you gentlemen are on the other side of the microphone where these guys are sitting there, and day in, day out, they're having to answer questions. Oftentimes, it's the same questions, or maybe sometimes the questions aren't really you know, thought-provoking questions. And for these guys to sit there every day and answer the same things, and Adam's always the first guy to do it. And a lot of times the fans are getting a piece of what Adam said or any of the players, right? So it's you're really judging a player on how he answers a question by what is released to the to the public. So that's, a, that's another thing sometimes fans don't think about is uh, you don't, you're not always getting the full context of what the players are saying. And for me, I mean, my quick Adam Lowry, Marat. Uh, I mean, I, I think that I think that Adam Lowry is one of the few players in the NHL right now who could be a general manager. That's his knowledge base of the other player. I mean, he can talk to specifics about systems, about players that he's going to not just the players he's going to go up against. I mean, you can go to Adam Lowry's locker and talk about the Western League or the American League. I mean, this guy's plugged into hockey. And can you talk a little bit about what the value of having a guy that? has like cares about the game that much i mean some guys we, we've heard stories about some guys who don't even watch hockey unless they have to watch it on video in a video session well for sure that's not mark shifley because he'll come back the next morning and he's going to know every single play that was made by every single team like he's a hockey junkie and i think adam has that in him as well where often he'd be watching his father's teams he's cheering for them but he'll watch his father's team in the western league right now so he's still so close to the game for family reasons, of course, but I think he he wants to get better too. So, I, I, and I'm I'm not talking out of school. I'm pretty sure he was like the Scholastic Player of the Year, if I remember correctly. So there's an academic side to him, even from his Western League days. So he's a studious, cerebral person. Your idea of him being a general manager, I I could see that happening. I don't know if he's motivated to do that, but I know that you can talk to him about other players. So, even if we're working on something small after practice and Let's say it's Gustafson. Adam will have informed opinions about the other teams. It's not like him, you know, just puffing out his chest and saying how smart he is. He has immediate recall of the players, specific situations, and he has an ability to teach that to a younger player like Gustafson. So he, he could be a coach. He could be a general manager. If he's smart, he's probably going to get out of hockey and do something that he, you know, he doesn't have any stress on. <laughs> um 
I, I like stories about good people, and I, I can't help but share one. Uh, once upon a time, I was leaving uh, Bell MTS Place after a practice and walking down Hargrave Street, and um, you know, who do I see over my shoulder leaving? I think it was City Place by that Boston Pizza, and uh, it's Todd Woodcroft. I think I think we waved. I think there was some sort of acknowledgement that we had seen each other, and then I crossed the street, went out about my way. A few minutes or a few seconds go by, and. I hear my name being called out. Hey, Murat, Murat, what's going Like, what's up? I, I turn around and Todd Woodcroft is arm in arm, uh, straight out of a cliche, straight out of a movie, uh, walking an elderly woman across the street. He asks me to flag down a, a, a taxi cab. I do that. I'm beside a, a row of them by the hotel that's right there. And then I wait. And it turns out that this lady had, I, I guess she was looking for her doctor's appointment. She She wasn't exactly... Uh, sure what the address was did you know where it was and all of a sudden Todd Woodcroft like a hero shows up uh, puts her in the taxi cab gets to make sure that the address is straightened and on her way and I'm wondering have I made like this happened right this is a real thing that happened you didn't just pay me to write that like what happened in that day for you Maybe you didn't know I was actually like taking her purse or something. You didn't. You didn't maybe have the whole, <laughs> the whole picture. Yeah, I, I I remember that specifically too. Like I'm I'm taking a lot of uh, a lot of flack for that story, but I think that um, if you yeah you've got it you've got it bang on and you remember I remember that because she she had actually what, what you didn't know from beforehand was that she, she had taken a cab to go to her doctor's appointment and they just brought her there, dropped her off, and then took off on her. So they basically just. Uh, took her money so she didn't have any money and she was she was actually confused of where she was going so if you remember like I actually I wouldn't say I threatened the cab driver but I said that that was like our grandmother or something and she better get home and you know got her address from from her and 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 actually the cabbie you know he promised that he would stay and wait for her and get her home so that that was the whole the whole thing there but I, I think it's more of just anybody in this city like you you know that some people are struggling at different times and if you can see even the commitment to the community from Mark Chipman to everything from the True North Foundation to Camp Manitou, like, like those are just gestures I think any person would do. It just happened to happen that you were standing there and, and I was coming out at the exact same time. So, uh, yeah, but maybe maybe I stole a person that you don't know the real answer on that one. So. <laughs> I, I love, um, well, first of all, I'll tell everybody out there that you made sure that I didn't write that for a little while. But yeah, I think I, think I threatened you. I think it. I threatened you on that one, so I'm, <laughs> I'm really not that good a guy. Yeah, I threatened to take my wallet, too, and you, you know I have bad experience with that stuff. So um, I, I just, I love being able to write good stories uh, about good people in that situation, and it was nice to talk to Paul Maurice uh, about you as well, or even to write nice stories about Paul Maurice uh, he, and that relationship he had with that, that poor young yes. Jess fan who who passed away. I love being able to share those things and it's good to know when uh, you know an organization that has such a big uh, stature within the city of Winnipeg is populated with people who do those sorts of things. So uh, uh, a sincere pleasure to share that. It's been a sincere pleasure to have you on as well. Uh, I feel like we either got to get you back or just let our producer uh, you know ruin the rest of his day, keep you for another hour right now. Uh, it's been so good. I just want to say thank you on behalf uh, of, of Ken and myself. I, I appreciate it, gentlemen, and I think, you know, that you guys are doing an awesome job. I listen all the time. I appreciate, uh, uh, I'm not a big social media uh, person, but I, I, I'm aware of how uh, kind you guys have been to me, and, and, and I appreciate it, but just understanding that that's just, those are small things that everybody in the organization does all the time. Uh, I think that anybody who's lucky enough to where the Jets logo will be doing those things every single day. You look at the people who work there, the people who are helping all those young kids, you know, the Murray Cobbs of the world who go and spend all their time with people who need some help. So that, that one instance that, I mean, yeah, obviously that's an, that's a nice thing, but I think there's way more things that are happening inside the organization. But for you guys to write all these things that are so kind about me, I, I appreciate it. And Anything you need from me down the road, I'm looking forward to helping you guys out and hopefully seeing you guys on the road when, when the Jets are in Montreal or in Boston. Thanks again, Todd. Appreciate it. Anytime, gentlemen. Take care. Stay safe. Well, that was the new head coach of the University of Vermont, Todd Woodcroft. And you, of course, know him as the 
assistant coach of the Winnipeg Jets until very recently. Ken, that was a that was a great conversation. Always educational, always informative. Even when I'm accidentally drawing <laughs> desire with about Mark Shifley, I'm glad that he set the record straight on that. Um, just a just a, a a very kind human being and, and a pleasure for us to have on the show. Yeah, and the other thing about Todd, he's such an insightful person, as as our listeners are going to find out. I mean, Todd's a guy who, I mean, we've been fortunate enough to have him on our TSN broadcast on the pregame show a little bit. But, I mean, he's not in the media a lot, given his position. But this is a guy that is so incredibly passionate about the game. He's always learning, trying to get better. And uh, he's really put in a lot of effort with a lot of players on this roster that have that have taken some big leaps in, in terms of their skill development. So I, I'm sure that Todd's going to do well uh, down the road. He's going to do a great job with recruiting. We know he's a people person, and he's got a lot of hockey knowledge as well. So uh, great that he was able to spend all that time with us. And he went so long that we're going to have to save our discussion about the uh, Winnipeg Jets fan survey for next week. But maybe just a couple of quick uh, quick thoughts from you on, on the stories you wrote this week about the extensive survey where almost a thousand uh, replies to, to the survey and had some interesting results. Oh, yeah, 100%. I, I was... I told you about this. I geeked out on that. I absolutely geeked out on uh, on the fan survey. Um, I think it was something like forty questions we put together for that, and more or almost a thousand people. Part of me responded. Uh, it, I was impressed to see just how I guess satisfied Jets fans were on on the whole, and I, I thought that it could go a number of ways when it came to you know how satisfied are you with the head coach, how satisfied are you with the management, how satisfied are you with the owners, because. Uh, the, the team went from a, a cup contender for two consecutive years, depending on how you evaluate the team, but certainly a playoff contender, to a bubble team. And the question for me was going to be, you know, do fans see this as situations outside of the team's control? And you could point to that with injuries, with a Bufflin situation or what have you. Or is there going to be blame pointed at head coach Paul Maurice, at, at Kevin Dayoff? Why didn't they fix this sooner? Why isn't this team... Uh, a little bit further ahead. And so I was very um, intrigued by simply how confident and how satisfied the Jets fans were on the whole. Um, when it came time to play GM, I, I thought that there would be a, a lot more push for a re-signing of Cody Eakin than perhaps that uh, I saw. 90-something percent are on the Dylan DeMello should re-sign train. And I know you've suggested kind of three to four years, low three million could be a reasonable deal for him. But I was curious, what were your takeaways as you read through it, uh, you know, on, on DeMello or otherwise? Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm not. I'm just not sure where the other percentage is. I'm not sure how you could look at Dylan DeMello and not think that it's 100%. I mean, again, I understand that not everyone sees the things the way that we do. But, I mean, I think that at that three, three and a half million dollar range for Dylan DeMello at, at his age bracket and given his ability to partner with uh, Mark Shifley for several years, I mean, I think he'd be a perfect partner down the road for uh, Vili Hainala. Uh, I could see a scenario where he's playing with Dylan Sandberg if Sandberg's not with Neil Pionk. I mean, just a steady player all around. And yeah, I mean, it's inter- It's always interesting because we we often see um, in the comments. Uh, I think that that vocal minority often speaks out against Paul Maurice or or has questions with usage. And and I think that both of us have discussed this a lot. I think that some of the narratives surrounding Paul Maurice historically have been slowly but surely started to be chipped away at. So uh, I think that Maurice had done a good job and uh, coaching staff on a whole. I mean, again, I mean, Wade Flaherty has done a great job with Connor Hellebuck. I mean, who's front runner to be the Norris or sorry, to be the Vesna trophy winner. So it's always interesting. And I mean, we'll see who the next assistant coach is with the Jets, but I don't see, uh, I mean, all those assistants were up, or their deals are up, I believe. So I would imagine that they're all back, but I'm curious to see who fills that Todd Woodcroft uh, role as he departs for Vermont. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, uh, whether they fill with from within somehow or go outside the organization. And there's so much unknown about, uh, you know, hockey right now in general, the possibility of July and what have you. I, I did want to say, like, in terms of that vocal minority too, I want to foster a, a, a place where as long as it's ideas and, and strategies being sort of attacked or dissected and it's not people, I love fostering a situation where people can, you know, criticize and discuss and, and what have you. And I think that it's a good space to do that in. But I think that there there is a little bit to what you say too about it. It turned out, you know, when you run the poll, it seems to be a vocal minority that 
is sort of chewing on things and then sometimes very rationally i love our commenters for that and sometimes you can get on on, on twitter and you can see some things <laughs> um, but we do want to introduce uh, a, a, a solid space to to have those discussions and, and our comment section is great for that so we're introducing a comment section for each podcast as well strictly through the athletics app so not on not on your web browser on your computer but if you're going through the app you can comment on each episode uh, you can share your thoughts on on what todd woodcroft had to say about adam lowry mark shifley vermont and so many more things that was a great conversation comments for ken and myself as well uh, make sure you say hello let us know how we're doing that's on the athletic app only um, check that out and other than that, I think that that's that's a wrap. I'll, I'll tell you about Holly offline, but she got a she got adopted. Life is good in Winnipeg for one day. Um, Ken has been a pleasure as always. And if you're out there listening to us, don't forget to rate and subscribe to the Boarding Pass on Apple. All you got to do is click on the show's URL, theathletic.com/slash/theboardingpass, to get forty percent off your subscription to theathletic.com. Mm-hmm.